Creativity comes in many forms. The stroke of a paintbrush. Notes from a piano. He was an old man. The voice of a storyteller. Creativity inspires us, drives us. It brings smiles to our faces and tears to our eyes. It even helps us solve problems and discover breakthroughs. Yet, there are many people out there who'll say that they're just not creative. Like, not at all. Can't draw a circle to save their life. They fail to tell a tale. The reality, though, is that everyone, and I mean everyone, has the power to be creative. All it takes is a little training. I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. Today, we're going to meet two people who are creativity experts. First, Angus Fletcher is a professor of English who works at Ohio State's Project Narrative. His background in neuroscience and literature makes him uniquely qualified to discuss the science of stories. And his latest work revolves around training people to be creative. He's helped all kinds of people, from business leaders to third graders to the U.S. Army, flex their creative muscles, even if they think they don't have any. Angus sat down with R. Ross Bischoff to discuss his methods for helping people and teams become more creative, and how you can start thinking more creatively yourself. I think you have the coolest description for your job on Earth, and it's story scientist. What is a story scientist? A story scientist is something that was invented here at Ohio State, and it's basically a neuroscientist who studies how stories work in the brain. So we work with Hollywood, we work with businesses in terms of how they make plans and strategies. We work with anyone who has a narrative that they want to tell. You've been training people how to be creative, and I find that fascinating. Can anyone be creative, or is that something that only a few people can get? The reason I got involved in the creativity research in the first place is I was made aware of a very alarming statistic, which is that starting around third grade, the more school you have, the less creative you get. So I just thought to myself, well, this is a real problem because creativity is what allows us to invent better answers to old problems. It's what allows us to solve new problems. It's what creates technology. It's what creates medicine. It's what creates art. It's what creates the future. And I just thought to myself, if we can train students to do so many wonderful things, can we not figure out a way to help them become more creative? If you can be creative in your own life, you can come up with new ways to overcome challenges and seize opportunities that are around you. And once you have that power in you, once you know that I can come up with a new answer to any problem that faces me, you develop resilience, you develop self-belief, you stop being afraid of life, and you want to embrace all of the complexities of life because you see that the harder that life gets, the smarter and the stronger you get. That's incredible. And I mean, the, the obvious question is, how do you train someone to be creative? Part of the reason that I became fascinated with this is because for the last 70 years or so, there has been an institutional way of training creativity, and most of us are familiar with it. It comes with terms such as brainstorming or design thinking or divergent thinking. And it rests on the premise that the human brain is a computer and that the way to get more ideas out of that computer is to encourage randomness. So I started to hang out with 
artists and people in Silicon Valley who invent new technologies and, and you know, entrepreneurs who make new businesses. And I realized immediately, creative people are not random. I mean, if you've ever met a creative person, they don't just like, you know, kind of crash around doing arbitrary things. Um, they have their own method. And so I started to think, what is that method? How can we learn that method? And how can we start to translate that method? And it turns out that that method is not something that computers can do. And it turns out that that method is something that children do naturally. And it's turned out that even though that all of us are born with that method, it's something that we can either let slip in our lives or dedicate ourselves to getting better at over time. It's more of a computational thinking, right? Versus the narrative method. Like what are the different, like contrast those two things. So divergent thinking is based on associating very, very different things, divergent things from different categories. So you might take one category, which is colors, and you might take another category, which is animals. And you might say, okay, blue bear, yellow dolphin, <laughs> you know, green butterfly. And it's something that a computer can do very, very easily because all you have to do is set up these categories and then just randomly take one thing from one and mix it with something from the other. And this is the basis of all the computer AI generators that we see, ChatGPT. They do this brute force randomization. But it turns out that it's actually not very effective. Computers haven't come up with any new ideas. They haven't come up with any breakthrough technologies or any breakthrough medicines or any breakthrough art. They haven't done any of this kind of stuff. Actually, real creatives work differently. They don't take a bazillion ideas and randomly associate them. They focus on one idea that is unusual and they push it against the norm. And you see this with really, really creative people is they get fixated <laughs> on something that other people think is odd or, or, or peculiar or strange. And everyone tells them, well, you're wasting your time. But instead of going backwards and saying, you know what, I am wasting my time and giving it up, the creative person goes forwards and pushes that idea. And when you push something forward, that's a narrative. What's happening with the creative thinker who's using narrative is they're seeing if I make this one tiny change, it has these knock-on consequences. It changes the story of the future. And that process is known as counterfactual thinking, thinking against the facts. And the key to being a successful creative is asking yourself this question. What's the smallest change that I can make now that has the biggest effect in the future? Talk about how creativity can lead to leadership or, or different skill, like creating these different skills from what you've seen. The thing about being a leader is you have to anticipate the future. We have this false idea of leadership now that being a good leader is being able to make decisions. What can make decisions is a computer. A computer can make decisions. A computer can make decisions because you give it the data and then it just decides which of them has the highest probability. But to be a good leader, you have to see the decision that isn't already there. You have to say that of all the past actions that have been made, there's a new one that no one has seen before, and I'm gonna take that. And to do that, you have to operate in low and sometimes no data. You have to operate in these environments of extreme volatility and uncertainty, which are the environments of the future. You have to guess what's gonna to come tomorrow. You have to be the person who's standing at the front of your organization, looking beyond your organization's current operations to all the volatility and all the opportunities that, that might emerge in future markets. And how do you do that? You don't do it with data, you do it with imagination. The arts and creativity really doesn't necessarily get the credit for having real world applicability sometimes. And I think everything you do flies in the face of that, correct? 
the arts and literature are what give us creativity. And people have always known that. Uh, if you look back at whether it's Darwin or Tesla or uh, Edison or Robert Goddard, the father of modern space flights, Van Gogh, I mean, all of these people are reading Shakespeare. They're reading Shakespeare because Shakespeare fires their imagination and allows them to imagine new science, new futures. We are so obsessed with critical thinking, with math, with all these logic-based skills that we've forgotten the value of imagination, of creativity, of going beyond the data to see things that haven't been seen before. And the reason that's so important is that, that is the skill that has allowed us to create modernity. That's what has allowed us to imagine all the technology. That's what's allowed us to imagine AI. And we're now forgetting that. At the core of democracy is the idea that each of us doesn't think the same. In logic, we all think the same. There's only one right answer to a math problem. But with imagination, there's all sorts of different possibilities we can imagine. And we want to cultivate that diversity of narratives, that diversity of stories, because that allows us to have many, many more possibilities for the future. And that means if a future comes and I don't know how to handle it, I can ask you. And maybe you've got a story in your head that you've thought up that we can use together as our plan for the future. And so the whole point of diversity is to increase our flexibility by encouraging individual imaginations to think original plans and plots and actions. And we've just lost that in our modern standardized school system with its standardized tests. So Angus, what is the benefit of teamwork toward creativity? So I've had the opportunity in my life to work with a large number of teams that work together creatively. So I worked in Hollywood in writer's rooms. In a writer's room, you might have five, six, even 13 writers together creating the same TV show. I've worked, obviously, a lot in business contexts where you bring together a large team to try and solve a problem or come up with a new product or service. And I've worked a lot with uh, special forces units who have to work in teams of 12 and figure out in a dynamic field, how are we all going to solve this problem that's unfolding as we watch it? And how are we all going to work together in time to solve this problem? And what you discover is that we are more creative together if we can be open. And that is the challenging thing, is to be open to other people's creativity. Creatives are always trying to push the idea to its furthest possible conclusion. You're not trying to be logical and engage in convergent thinking or critical thinking. What you're trying to do is you're trying to suspend all of your skepticism and all of your doubts. And that's hard to do with yourself, and it's even harder to do with other people. Because when other people start saying stuff to you that's very different, you might feel that it threatens your ideas or you might threaten where you want to go. But what successful teams do is they train themselves to say yes and, yes and, yes and. And what happens over time is you then end up with two or three different ideas or possibilities or plots that are all on the table at the same time in tension with each other but pushing forward. And that tension, again, just like the conflict in a plot, then generates more things out of it. So ultimately, we are more creative together. That's the kind of ultimate challenge, um, but is also the ultimate reward of a creative life. So if we all have the ability to be creative, what does that mean for society? If we're able to hone and grow our creativity, can we then change the way we connect with each other? Maybe artistic expression can do more than just make us laugh or cry or take our breath away. 
Maybe it can help us build and heal our communities. Carmen Winant is an associate professor in the Department of Art at Ohio State, where she is the Roy Lichtenstein Chair of Studio Art. Recently, Winant has taught art and creativity in Ohio prisons through the Ohio Prison Education Exchange Project, or OPEEP. And in doing so, she discovered something breathtaking, and she talked about it with our Franny Lazarus. Thanks for joining us, Carmen. What do you say to people who think that they're not creative? It's a really good question, and it's a question that I hear frequently as an artist and as a professor at Ohio State. I have a lot of, I encounter a lot of undergraduate students in particular who are taking classes uh, that might be a GE, you know, like a class in introductory photo or ceramics or drawing. And they feel really insecure, right? And they bring with them that exact insecurity, which is, I'm not creative, which they equate with some level of um, technical expertise, right? Mm -hmm. And so the work, in some sense, at the very outset, is unlearning what the sort of inlaid idea of what it means to be creative. And that, in fact, of course, proficiency matters. But that's not the only thing that matters, right? And that so much of being an artist in the world is being willing to experiment, being willing to apply your imagination, being willing to take risks, being willing to um, you know, consider concepts as they happen and move through your body. Can you talk a little bit about creativity and how you can use creativity to foster community? You know, because we are sitting here proximate to the university, you know, the first place my mind goes is thinking about the classroom and what we do in the classroom together and how important it is to establish right right off the bat, you know, in everything from like a small workshop to a semester long class, a seminar or a studio class, how important it is to establish a sense of mutual trust, right? Mm. Which is what is that if not building community? Last semester, you taught a class with the Ohio Prison Education Exchange Project, OPEEP. Was this your first time teaching a class with OPEEP? OPEEP is an incredible um, group here on campus, which um, is run and facilitated by Professors T. Morris and Mary Thomas. Um, I do have experience um, teaching in prisons and teaching in juvenile justice centers, but this was my first time working through OPEEP and being trained through Inside Out, which is this national body that trains, mm-hmm. through which OPEEP is associated, that, that trains prison educators. It was an incredible experience that had, as you might imagine, a very steep learning curve. I co-taught a class with my friend and colleague, Danny Restack, also in the Department of Art, in the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville, Ohio, which is about 45 minutes from where we're sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, And importantly, the class, as all um, Inside Out classes, are populated by half inside students and half outside students, so half incarcerated students and half OSU students that are, of course, driving to the facility. And we taught a drawing class um, in large part because those were the materials, the easiest materials to get in and through. Mm. So, for instance, you know, when I might normally do an artist uh, presentation and share, you know, 15 or 30 artists who work in and around the subject, you know, in which we're focusing that week or for that block. Um, instead, I would have to print out, you know, 50 sheets and hand around printouts and do a lecture off of handouts, mm. right? And likewise, the women inside had to be incredibly um, nimble, you know, if they couldn't uh, cut paper for their collage assignment, they were ripping it. If they couldn't 
you know, use gouache. They were breaking open ballpoint pens and smearing the ink, right? If they didn't have access to this or that sort of material, they would use eyeliner or Vaseline. And it was just incredible. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I felt so emboldened by that experience. First of all, to continue teaching within prisons, Mm -hmm. but also to be an artist, to be an art educator. It felt as though there was a kind of energy in the room and curiosity towards art making Mm -hmm. that were stunning. Mm. Um, And of course, also, I would be remiss to not mention that it also reinforced for me just the profound inhumanity of the system mm-hmm. in uh, you know in which these women are incarcerated and how strange in some ways I'm without words in describing what it felt like to leave the classroom and get discharged from the facility and walk to my car and drive away every week back to my house back to my kids you know with the understanding that the women inside were not obviously able to leave sure When you were driving back from Marysville, that's 45 minutes back to Columbus, that's a lot of time to think. What was going through your head? I should mention that more often than not, we carpooled Mm. because we were a group of about 10 outside students plus two professors. Yes, a lot was going through my head, but also there was a lot happening in the car, in the (laughs) conversations, Mm. right? And we were talking about the artwork, right? We were talking about what we had seen, what, what other people were making. There's a lot of excitement inside of that. But more than anything, we were sharing stories mm-hmm. and talking about, it sounds a little bit too coldly put to describe it this way, but about the relationships that we're forming. So one thing that I took away from the training that I did with Inside Out and you know my work with OPEEP was just how important it is to invest, talk about community, just how important it was to invest in the community of the room. What were you hoping that your Ohio State students would take from their OPEEP experience in your class? All of the students were treated the same and there were the same expectations. So we weren't giving Ohio State students, I don't know, access to online materials that inside students couldn't have. We weren't asking them to, um, you know, go out and buy different kind of pencil or, you know, like, or gouache. In fact, we were quite insistent that there be equity, Mm. right? Again, I, I feel a little reticent to speak for the students in the class, but I would hope <laughs> that um, they took away a sort of a similar understanding that we are, as I'm sorry, it sounds sort of hackneyed to put it this way, but that we are all human beings, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, that we're sort of all messy and striving and imperfect human beings, and that some people are unlucky, some people are disadvantaged, some people mm-hmm. have made mistakes, and they've ended up in what is, um, as I've described it earlier, what I consider to be an inhumane system and structure. Yes, it's through art making, (laughs) but really I think it's through the conversations that we had, um, the icebreakers that we used, what people shared from their stories, the ways in which we connected. And, you know, of course, it's never as simple as you think. We have uh, OSU students who have been formerly incarcerated, who are now on the outside taking the class, right? We had an inside student who had previously been enrolled at OSU and was planning you know, to go back wow. afterwards. So maybe uh, the lines are more blurry than you would think. What was your goal in sharing your community building practices with the people as you, you were calling them inside students? What were you hoping that they could take from these lessons beyond technical art skills? I think first and foremost, we wanted to demonstrate that 
everyone in the class is a worthy human being, worthy of being listened to, worthy of an art education, Mm -hmm. worthy of these exchanges, worthy of having their work taken seriously. Of course, we wanted to share with them also, you know, skills that one would garner in an art class. And in this case, because it was a 3000 level class, which is a technically an advanced drawing class, we were we were working with a lot of different sort of experimental processes. So actually, one of the first thing that we did was to dismantle the idea of good drawing and bad drawing, right? And think about what what sort of experimental processes could look like if we blended, if we cut, if we made something non-representational, if we used our, if we thought of our bodies as an instrument, right? So um, we worked right off the bat also to give the students a sense of freedom inside of their bodies vis-a-vis creative expression, Mm. I would say. And then ultimately, we had an exhibition on campus of their work, of both the inside and outsiders' work. And we wanted to give them, you know, some sense that their work was being shown and valued and cared for. We also did a sort of small-scale exhibition inside the prison. Mm. And You know, other women saw it, other OSU students, you know, in that case, and the outside OSU students saw it. And so I think always that feels, I would imagine that feels as a student as though you're being, you know, um, talk about worthiness, that you're being, that your work is visible, right? That it's, it has meaning, that it should be hung on a wall, Mm -hmm. right? That it should be taken in by passerby. Carmen, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. What do you think? Still don't think you have the power to be creative? Perhaps it's time you give it another shot. Pick up a brush and paint some happy little trees. Tell a goofy story to your kids. Dust off that keyboard and play a few notes. Because maybe those doodles you draw while you're on the phone, or those melodies you hum while you take a shower, maybe they mean a little bit more to humankind than you realize. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Jacob Carosa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>